This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It is expected that uh, in the next uh, 48 hours or so, the Bank of Canada is going to raise interest rates. Now, it's not going to be significant, or so they say anyway, but uh, would a raise in interest rates put Canadians in the red? Now, the Bank of Canada is probably going to raise uh, lending rates, and that's not just affecting mortgages. That seems to be where the discussion goes, but there's a lot more to this. And to bring us up to speed on that, we welcome Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, to the program. Morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? I am fine, thank you, Bill. Listen, I, I, as soon as I hear a headline like this or read a headline like this, I, I think back to, to the U.S. crisis, the, the Fannie Mae and the mortgage lenders and everything else and how people walked away from their houses and there were almost total you know, housing surveys in neighborhoods that were just all of a sudden vacated. Uh, I don't want to start fanning the flames of discontent and say, my God, that could happen here. But uh, we've been pretty comfortable with m- low, low mortgage rates for the last little while. Are we maybe a little too comfortable? Yeah, that's, that has been the philosophy starting back in 2007, where we, trying to stimulate the economy in the face of a recession, started to cut some interest rates. We got down to a sort of a standard at 1%, and it sat there for the better part of three or four years until 2015, when we saw the price of oil drop suddenly, and that sent a shockwave through the Canadian economy. People don't quite remember, but in the first half of 2015, we had a mini-recession, all due to low oil prices. And so Stephen Polos, the governor of the Bank of Canada, said, well, we need to, need to do something more to stimulate the economy. Even though his overnight rate was 1%, he cut it a further half a percent, down to 0.5%, and that's where it has stayed ever since. We do this to try to stimulate the economy. In the face of bad economic times, we try to stimulate the economy to keep everything moving, to keep you know, people employed, to keep uh, the flow of cash so that businesses can operate, etc. What we've seen in the last six months is a strengthening of the Canadian economy. Now, I know there are many of your listeners out there who say, well, Marvin, wait a minute, I don't feel it's gotten that much stronger. Well, when we say strengthening the economy is similar to watching somebody in the emergency room at the at the hospital, are they able to breathe on their own? Can we take the breathing tube out or can we get them off oxygen? The question really is, is it strong enough that we don't need this additional support? And the consensus building is that the Canadian economy has picked up enough strength that we don't need some of this additional support. So uh, there's a 90% chance, Bill, it's not an absolute certainty that 48 hours from now this is going to happen, but pretty good likelihood that on Wednesday at 10 a.m., the Bank of Canada is going to announce that their overnight rate has jumped from 0.5% to 0.75%. Now, a quarter-point increase in the uh, overnight lending rate isn't necessarily going to send great gigantic shock waves through the system. If you have a fixed mortgage, for instance, a locked-in mortgage is going to make no difference to you. If you have a variable-rate mortgage, yes, your variable-rate mortgage will go up 0.25%. But, you know, for most Canadians, that's not going to be that much. For instance, if you owe $100,000, a uh, 0.25% means you're going to pay another $250 a year. Divide that by 12 months, that's $20 a month. I think we can cover that. But also, and I think this is what's forgotten, is that not everyone has a mortgage, but many people have a home line of credit. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that, because that's the, uh, the, the, the new era of, of economics here, isn't it? Right. Well, new to some. I, I know I personally had one for, for over 20 years. Uh, what it does, a home line of credit lets me use the equity within my house to secure some, some uh, debt if I need it for various projects. For instance, a few years ago, I decided to re-roof my house, and rather than doing 
an asphalt shingle. I actually paid for a metal roof on the house. That was an $18,000 project, and, and I didn't want to put it on a credit card. I'm not actually sure I had a credit card that had that much of a limit. <laughs> so I was able to use my home equity line of credit, and I did that. And, you know, within three months, I had paid the, the, the uh, cost of the putting the roof on the house. I paid it down to zero. But there are many, many people who use these lines of credit, and, in fact, what they like about them is as long as you simply pay the interest on the line of credit, you don't have to worry about the principal. So we collectively, uh, the 35 million of us or so in Canada, have accumulated debt of $221 billion in these lines of credit. Well, on Wednesday, if it goes up, those lines of credit are going to get a little more expensive. So there's just, just these signs. I don't think anyone's on the verge of bankruptcy, and I don't think we're going to see the economy suddenly have a big negative reaction. But we're starting to see that the chickens are coming home to roost. Translation, I have said to you for many years, people should not view these low interest rates like we're having a big sale on debt, and you just stock up, get just as much of it as you possibly can when it's on sale. What you need to do is use it responsibly. And if you needed a reminder, Wednesday is going to be that reminder that the cost is going to go up. Bill, one more thing before I hand it back to you. I should note that uh, I don't anticipate another rate increase by the Bank of Canada in 2017, but, but, 0.75% is still not back to historical normals. Therefore, I think if the economy continues to show strength in early 2018, January, February of 2018, we could see another 0.25% increase. So use this as a warning sign that if you have not already done so, get your economic house in order in terms of debt because the cost of borrowing is going to start to reverse itself. We're going to move out of these historically low, low, low rates into something a little more reasonable. All right. A number of things that you've raised here that we need to, to put some meat on the bones on. Uh, first of all, the reason I guess a lot of people don't pay off the principal when they borrow these is because is they figure, well, we don't have to. I mean, if I've got like $200,000 equity in the house and, and I owe $20,000 on this line of credit, they'll just take it off when I sell the house. So no big deal. In other words, I don't lose anything. Uh, but but it is cash available to them right now, so it's it's not may maybe the wisest economic thing to do, but it is you know it's short term thinking I suppose really isn't it? Well, it is short term thinking, and and like all debt, I think it's nice that we we can use it when we need to. I had an emergency where I had to put a roof on the house, and I didn't quite have all the cash at the time. It was wonderful that I had access to that instant line of credit, but I treat it just like I treat a credit card. Uh, I am better off financially if I'm not paying interest on debt. So I always think of any debt I assume as something that I also want to pay off just as quickly as I possibly can. I get the idea that you don't have to do it, but just because you don't have to do it doesn't mean it's a good idea to continue carrying it on. You're right. You know, If you leave it there and you sell your house, yes, it'll be paid off when you sell your house. And I know people, again, have said, well, I'm not worried about that because look at how much my house has gone up in value. I paid, I don't know, $300,000 for it, and now it's worth $500,000. Well, again, these interest rate changes, not only are they going to affect borrowing, but they may affect the value of your houses. We've seen a cooling of the housing market, mostly so far in terms of volume. So the volume has gone down, but prices have stayed pretty consistent. For now. For now, right. But now that the interest rates are going up and the cost of borrowing is a little more expensive, we may see housing prices uh, stop that upward march and, in fact, maybe reverse. I don't think, again, hugely, but if the market fell 1%, 2 5% in terms of value, that might send a signal to people as well that you've got to get back to 
operating with credit and debit, etc., just as reasonably as possible. A couple of other things about this. When, when you were talking about the impact this is going to have on, on Canadians, uh, you used the example of, uh, say, $100,000 on a mortgage. And from mathematical purposes, that, that makes a lot of sense because it makes it easy to understand. I don't know too many people that have a $100,000 mortgage anymore. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, for the 2% of homeowners that have 100000 most of the ones I know are 200000 $300,000, $400,000 in some cases. So multiply the example you just gave by whatever that is times of a hundred. And and it can it's not significant necessarily. I don't think it's going to cause people to walk away from their homes, but it's going to be a problem. And then add on to that, uh, sadly, Marvin, I know you've been saying for years on this program that people should get a hold of their debt. They're not listening to you, uh, sadly. And you know, a pox on them for doing that, but they're not. Uh, Canadians have more debt than they've ever had in the history of this country right now. So it's it's not just mortgage. It could be car payment. It could be home equity loan. It could be any number of different things. And it's uh, ba-ding, 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 ba-ding. All of a sudden, you've got a pretty substantial increase in, in the money that you have to shell out every month now. Right. So let, let's deal with your first example, sure. that your mortgage is more like 400000 than 100000 So now we're talking about an $80, $85 a month increase in the, in the cost of your mortgage. Again, I don't think that first increase here on Wednesday is going to send you into a tizzy. It is going to tighten your belt a little bit and maybe say, well, we can't eat out quite as much as we did before, or maybe we can't have that extra trip this year that we were thinking of. But the key is, I think people need to understand, this is not going to stop with just one increase. That the Bank of Canada has has worried for some time that we have gotten addicted to these low credit prices. They did this to free up cash for the business sector, but you and I as consumers have benefited from it as well. They're going to take these life supports off. They're going to reduce our reliance on these really low interest rates. So if you've not done so, and Bill, you know, I don't necessarily blame people for not listening to me because I sounded like the boy who cried wolf. I kept saying rates were going to go up, and then two years ago they went even lower. I really do sound like that uh, you know, voice of doom in the background. But I can tell you now with, with great certainty that this is the first of many steps you're going to see over the next four or five years. The next one probably won't be for six to eight months, but use this first step as a warning sign and ask yourself, how are we coping with this first 0.25% increase? Because there's likely going to be another one. And if you don't like this one, then do something now so that in six to eight months when the next one happens, you won't be as badly affected. Okay, here's a question of a more philosophical nature then. Things are going well. So all the tools that were in place to make things go well, all of a sudden the Bank of Canada wants to start tinkering with. Are they not running the risk if they're simply going to drive the economy down again? Well, that's certainly a concern, and and you might remember what drives our economy is not so much made in Canada but made outside of Canada. So they're making this decision in part because of the strength of the Canadian economy, but also in part because of strength they're seeing in the American economy, what they're seeing out of Asia and what they're seeing out of Europe. This is also why they're only going to increase 0.25% and then stand back. It's kind of like, you know, you make a little adjustment on the television set or something like that, then you stand back to see what impact that had on the picture. But they feel that all the signs are saying that they don't need this extra level of stimulus. So, again, maybe the... The example of the patient in the emergency room, we're going to try taking the feeding tube out. If it doesn't work, we can always put the feeding tube back in. The next setting of the rate of the Bank of Canada is right after Labor Day on September the 6th, I think it is. So we could always put it back, but ultimately we want to take the feeding tube out. We want to get the patient breathing on their own. 
this is a necessary step, but they will do it slowly and prudently. Uh, I will also tell you, Bill, that when this year dawned, 2017, I didn't think it was going to happen this year. I actually thought it was going to happen either in the very last setting of 2017 in December or more likely in early 2018. The fact that it's happening or potentially happening six months earlier than expected really speaks volume as to how strong the Canadian economy is getting. Well, and that's great. But like you say, the average individual who's listening, as a matter of fact, I would venture to say most of the people that are listening to our conversation right now are looking around saying, economy's better? I, really? I don't see that. So it's not it's not filtering down. I, I hate to use the term trickling down, but it's not filtering down right now to, I think, the average Canadian. I mean, the statistics may be there, but we, we're not feeling it. We're not seeing it yet. But what does happen, and you've talked about this many times, is when you start to raise interest rates, consumers get skittish and say, you know what, I'm not spending my money. I'm not sure. I'm not going to buy that house. I may not buy that new car. And and all of a sudden, the economy starts to stall. So I'm wondering if this is really a recipe for, for reversing this whole process. Well, this is why you do it very slowly and very deliberately on the way out. Well, remember, south of the border, the Federal Reserve Board has already, has already on its own processed two of these rate increases in the last 12 months. In fact, they're poised to do another rate increase later this month. So those people who, who, by the way, are snowbirds thinking, ah, this rate increase is going to drive up the Canadian dollar, it may actually go up nearly a penny, uh, but I only suspect that effect's going to last a week or so until the Federal Reserve Board raises their rates and the difference changes yet again. I, I don't think this is going to happen in this case, Bill, but we knew when we were going down that what went down was going to have to come back up at some point. These are not historically sustainable levels of interest rates, and they were going to have to get back to something normal. This debt load of 167% actually says that consumers have have overreacted, if you will, to these low interest rates. So just like it took them a while to take on this additional debt, it's like losing weight now, you've got to take a while to help you lose the weight. I don't think you're going to see a big rush to do another interest rate increase soon, but inevitably we are starting to move in the direction that we've thought they should have moved for nearly a decade. I've got about a minute left here, and this is probably an answer that requires about 15 or 20 minutes. But <laughs> for, for somebody who has now seen the light and says, you know what, Marvin was right all along. We're going to have to do something about that 167% debt. W- with interest rates going up, that's going to make that much more difficult to do. Well, the key, first key, obviously, in debt reduction is to make sure you get rid of the highest interest rate debt first. And so one bit of odd news here is this increase on Wednesday is not going to affect your credit cards. Credit card debt, uh, or the, the rate charged by credit cards, did not go down as the Bank of Canada reduced its rates. Therefore, it's not going to go up. We pay on many credit cards something like 24 26% interest rates. Uh, if you've got any outstanding credit card date debt, please, please, please swap it for something much cheaper. In this case, the home line of credit makes great sense. It's a lot cheaper at, say, 4% than 26%. So first, re- try to consolidate your debt and try to consolidate it at the lowest interest rate possible. And then... If it does mean that for six months you're not buying and spending the way you did before, I don't think that's the end of the world. Um, Don't buy that extra cup of coffee. Don't take that extra trip. Do whatever you can to bring your rates down, bring your your debt levels down, so that then you can absorb this. It, It can be done, Bill, and if you can't do it on your own, there are professional counselors out there often paid by the debtors themselves, the people who've loaned you the money, to help you get your situation in a better place. Take advantage of that right now until it, before it gets out of control. All right. I guess I can exhale then. It's going to be okay. Anyway, we'll see what happens Wednesday. Marvin, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Take care, Bill. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
the uh, Wynn government uh, is seeking public input on the proposed $15 an hour increase uh, to the minimum wage, which they say is going to take place in January of uh, next year, January of 2018. Uh, and, and I thought, I think a lot of people actually thought that this was actually carved in stone. It was going to be done uh, because it was announced. And they said, yeah, we're doing this. But now the government is, uh, well, they're not backtracking, but they are suggesting that uh, they are going to seek public input into this. Which begs the question, why didn't they do this extensively before they announced this? But be that as it may. Uh, there are a number of groups that are concerned about the uh, the minimum wage uh, increase, the proposed, I guess, minimum wage increase that uh, the government's talking about right now, uh, including a number of groups, uh, the Restaurants Canada, the Canadian Franchise Association, and uh, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce has uh, voiced some concern about this as well. Richard Corsell uh, sits on the board for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Richard, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, Bill. Thanks very much, and you? Great. Thanks uh, so much for joining us today. I know that uh, you talked to us a few weeks ago when uh, this program was first uh, initiated and, and and announced by the government right now. And I think, if I recall correctly, you mentioned at the time that you had made some submissions to the government right now and uh, weren't overly impressed that uh, they had adhered to an awful lot of the stuff that you've talked about. What's what's the Chamber's position, just to reiterate and and, and reinforce where you guys are coming from on this? Well, on the on the legislation itself, we have lots of concerns about what the impacts will be to uh, particularly to small and medium-sized uh, enterprises. Um, you know, there's been no real economic impact uh, study done, so we really don't know what the impacts will be. And we think it uh, doesn't, just doesn't make sense to kind of advance something like this without understanding what those impacts will be and looking at ways to potentially mitigate uh, what what might happen. So we're actually, um, and, and we can chat about this a little bit more, but we're actually undertaking, along with the um, coalition members, undertaking that that kind of work to better understand what the actual impacts will be. But certainly the other piece, the $15, you know, the $15 minimum wage was not even considered as part of the discussions um, on the workplace review. And it just came right out of the blue, uh, I think, last time we chatted. I mean, we had just heard about it, and it certainly was not part of the discussion. In fact, we had... A couple of years ago, work with the local, uh, work with the provincial government um, to talk about implementing a system where there would automatically be increases uh, taking place, and the government agreed to do that and actually had implemented it. So we had at least a predictable and understanding of uh, what the increases would look like, so business could then make adjustments along the way, and it wouldn't be sort of lump sum uh, at different times depending on when the government felt like doing something. So. We were all very happy with that and working along, and all of a sudden, out of, again, out of the blue came the $15 increase. And this is a significant, along with the um, uh, all the other changes that are proposed in the legislation, are very significant uh, changes to uh, to the workplace in terms of cost for small and medium-sized enterprises. Listen, I want to talk about the methodology that the Chamber is using, but I, you just touched on something that I think is very important to this discussion uh, because the focus, Richard, invariably is about the the wage increase, the minimum wage increase up to yeah. fifteen bucks an hour, uh, and understandably so. But there's a lot more in this legislation that's being talked about here uh, that's got an awful lot of people concerned. Maybe we could touch on a couple of those points that that are raising concerns with the chamber. Oh, sure. Well, you know, look at we we've heard a lot from our members. We have one uh, large automotive manufacturer predicts costs of almost eight million dollars will be paid for emergency legal loan. So that's an additional $8 million they have to account for just for that one small piece of the legislation. Uh, you know, we're going to see other uh, changes in terms of increases in uh, part-time jobs. And, you know, what's amazing for me is that 
the largest increase in part-time jobs have actually been in the public sector. And so we know that there's going to be a big hit, but we, but the government doesn't even know what the impact will be in terms of their own treasury. Because, again, the, the economic impact uh, study has not been done. So those are the kinds of things we're really kind of looking at uh, to be able to try to quantify and, and better understand so that we can say, look, at, here's the impacts. It's, you know, so many thousands of jobs we're going to lose. I, I, I'm sure it's going to be in the tens or hundreds of thousands, as well as the cost to Treasury uh, for, for all of these changes that would be taking place. And at the end of the day, those changes are going to cost each and every one of us as taxpayers more. Here's the thing that I'm concerned about, and because I've seen some of the numbers, and I've talked with with you about this, I've talked with Keenan Loomis at the Hamilton Chamber about this, I've talked with Tom Cooper on the uh, the Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, and and I'm hearing some very legitimate concerns on both sides of the issue here, but but I think once again it's the methodology that I think that is causing some concern here. Well, yeah, the methodology and timelines. The well, timeline yeah, is very very tight, and when you look at other jurisdictions where they made these kind of changes, they've done them over a much longer time frame, like five years or four years. We're talking about something happening over eight, you know, more than a 30%, 38% increase in 18 months. So, and I, I equate this to another policy that, that caused me some of these same concerns, and, and that was how they dealt with the real estate boom that's been going on, not just here in Ontario, but of course right across the country. And and they mimicked what happened in British Columbia. They said all of a sudden, you know what, we're going to put a surtax on foreign investment and foreign ownership of real estate here. And and the finance minister, Mr. Souza, made this great announcement and and asked and, and he was asked the same question that you're asking right now, Richard. Where's the study that indicates that this is even needed in Ontario? No, well, we'll do that. But, I mean, we're going to do this right now because we want to sh- cool this down. Well, the studies come out some months after that and realize, that, you know what, there's no problem here. Yeah. There was no problem with foreign ownership. It accounts, accounts I think, for about like 5% mm-hmm. of, of the market, and most of the people that are in, involved in foreign ownership are buying it to make it their primary residence. Yeah. So there's no issue. Yet they still imposed a tax, yeah. which tells me that, you know what, you're, you're putting the horse before the cart here, or the cart before the horse, or whatever it is. Uh, they're not doing their homework before they do these policies. And that's not to say the policies are wrong. It's just that if you want to sell this to the public and say this is in everybody's best interest, you should have some data to substantiate this, and they don't seem to do that. No, no, and that's, and that's very frustrating for, for all of us, certainly in the business sector, because we take the biggest hit. And, and it's going to affect um, you know, all the small and medium-sized enterprises. We've heard so many stories of people who are running small businesses just saying, look, at, for me to be able to make this work is going to be almost impossible. I've got... You know, from somebody who runs a small salon who's got uh, three or four people working for them, it's like almost a $6,000 per employee cost that they now have to accommodate. Well, wh- how do they do that? I mean, it's not like it's just going to, you know, they just can't kind of keep going the way they're going, especially when employee costs or staff costs are one of the most significant, if not the largest cost in many businesses. So what do you end up doing? You either have to pull back on the hours, lay some people off. You certainly won't be hiring new. Or you increase your price, or both. So what's going to happen is is we're going to see an, an incremental uh, prices that all of us are going to have to pay, including those that are getting the bump in the wage, um, as well as uh, you know we're we're also going to see you know employers who've got people they're already paying them fifteen dollars an hour or sixteen dollars an hour, and then somebody who's going to come in off the street now, and while that person's been there for six or eight years, this new person walks in the street and gets the same salary. It's going to compress all the uh, salaries within a range, and so everybody's going to want to look for a 30% increase. 
Well, and that's an interesting argument uh, that uh, I don't know if the government foresaw here, because I've, I've heard this more and more. Uh, and, and I'm of the mind, but I'm not a business owner, okay, that if I'm paying somebody 18 bucks an hour and, and somebody else 13 and all of a sudden that $13 an hour is being elevated by, by this increase, that $18 an hour person is going to come to me and say, well, you just increased their salary or their wages by 25%. I want a 25% raise. Yeah, and and I, I, they're, from a moral standpoint, Richard, maybe no justification for it, but they're going to ask for it nonetheless, and there's going to be a great deal of pressure on businesses to facilitate some of that. Oh, for sure. For sure. And then, and so we see lots of implications, and that's what our concern is. Look, we have many business owners appreciate the fact that people, if they're at a minimum wage, want to do better, and the business owners would like to see them, um, them increase that. But let's do it over a time frame that makes sense. Let's make sure we mitigate the negatives as much as possible, which means let's do our homework first and make sure that we understand what those implications are, and then look for changes that we can make along the way to make it easier for businesses to adapt. I mean, if I, I've got companies who are fixed in a contract today over the next 18 months to 24 months um, at, at what their pricing is, and they can't change it. So now you're forcing a, a 30% increase in their cost structure. What do they do? Well, what can they do? They're, they're limited in options. And again, this goes back. Let's let's talk about data now, Richard, and let's talk about accumulating data. And I mean, you you've got a strong, course, background in transportation with work at the airport and with uh, a number of different things happening with the government right now when it comes to moving people and, and product. And uh, and I want to rely on that expertise for just a couple of minutes right now because studies were done about, for instance, LRT projects and about other transportation policies. And invariably, they would they would cite, uh, well, this happened in Portland, this happened over here, and et cetera. Well, they're doing the same thing now with the minimum wage and saying, look, they've tried this in other jurisdictions, and I've read data on most of those. And you know what? It's a toss-up. Uh, some of the ones that say it's going to be a disaster say, yeah, but you didn't include all the data. You didn't include some of the fast food places or the coffee joints. Others are saying that, well, it was too broad and you didn't give it enough time frame. I don't know that there is anything you can put your finger on right now that says, aha, this is good or this is bad. We simply don't know yet. That's correct. That's correct. And that's why we've said, look at to the government. If you're not going to do this, then, then we brought a coalition of members together to say then we will. So we're looking to an independent party. So it won't be won't be by, be done by any of us. It'll be done by an independent, respected research firm that will go out and actually do the research and come back and say, okay, here's what we anticipate the the impacts will be, and then that opens up the door for some discussion about, okay, how do we how do we mitigate some of those impacts? What are the things we can do? Can we draw it out over a longer period? Are there other things that can be done to help businesses offset some of those costs in the short term? Well, because I don't know that there's anybody that I've talked to in the last couple of weeks since the government brought this issue to the fore that are saying, no, we don't think people making uh, minimum wage should be paid more. Because let's face it, you put more money in their pockets. We all know that. That's a very positive argument. That gives them more spending power. It helps them pay their bills. They'll go out and buy stuff. That, that generates more economic growth. We get all that. But that's, and I, that's a laudable goal. It's something we should strive for. I get that. But how do you do it? So that so that the guy that owns that business or the person that owns that business isn't going to come back and say, "Look, you know what? I can't have six people working for me anymore. Well, uh, I'm going to have to. It's going to have to be five. Or yeah, guess what? I can't. I've got increased production right now, but I can't afford to hire anybody. Well, that's right. And that I mean, that was one of the things that came out of the Seattle uh, study that was done um, that they found actually that, that the net impact was actually a, a negative impact 
on employees because they ended up with less hours. So so they ended up no further ahead. Fact, but that's, see, that's happening now. That's, yeah. that's not a, a possibility. That's going on right now. And, and the concern I've heard from some businesses is that, look, it's only going to get worse if we do this. That, sure. uh, that you know, i sorry, you know, you're part-time, Mr. Corsillo. I can't afford to give you 30 hours anymore. You can maybe get 10 or 12 because I, I simply can't afford the, the increased cost that I've got here. Well, that's, that's bad news for you. Yeah, that's right. So, so all you know, The good news again, is, Richard, you're now making 15 bucks an hour. The bad news is you're getting half the hours. That's right. And that's exactly what the Seattle study showed. And, and that's the concern we have. So how do we, you know, let's be a little more thoughtful in our approach to some of these things by taking some time to at least better understand what the impacts will be and look for ways to mitigate those, those impacts. You've had dialogue with the province. Uh, that You do have the ear, at least you've had it anyway on this. Uh, do you get any sense here that there's some flexibility here, that they really do want to get some input into this and, and that there, there is an opportunity that they may want to, to, to alter the, the plan that they've already talked about here? Well, you know, the, the, for us, the, the fact they're willing to go out and talk to the public now and, and to be able to hear uh, what the communities are saying, I think, is a good step forward. <clears throat> so we'll see what comes out of that. But they still haven't taken the step to say, okay, we'll, we'll go do the economic impact work, uh, study work that needs to be done so we better understand what's, what's going to happen. So we're hoping that, um, you know, they'll hear <clears throat> small to medium-sized enterprises in their in their uh, uh, cross province uh, tour, and uh, hear some of the what some of those impacts will be. You know, we're we're, we're accumulating stories from businesses who have, have and we've had many of them write to us and tell us, and they're be, they're being very diligent in actually calculating out what each one of the impacts will be to say, okay, here's the total bottom line for me, and so how do I make that happen? How do I uh, make the adjustment to to make that work? So I'm hoping they'll hear more of those stories, and and maybe some lights will go on, and there'll be um, there'll be a, a willingness to kind of look at this in a different light, and find ways to to uh, mitigate and make things work, uh, so that everybody wins at the end of the day. Because right now we just see lots of losers. Well. We've had the Labor Minister on, uh, Kevin Flynn, who is the, the Ontario Labor Minister, was on the program a week or two ago talking about this, and, yeah. and, and he raised some very legitimate points, but I mean, he's looking at it from the standpoint of his ministry, in other words, looking after the best interests of laborers, and I right. get that, and by the way, just about everything he said, I think, made all kinds of sense, Right. but again, it's it's almost like looking at this with in, in a myopic sense, okay, that's the labor perspective on this. Yep. And we've heard from the Poverty for Roundtable Reductions perspective, and, and I, I get where they're coming from, and, and I, I support a lot, a lot of what they're doing, and, and they have the best of intentions. But they're not looking for this, I don't think anyway, Richard, in the broader sense about, well, what are the, what's the impact it's going to have on the economy? What's it going to have on business? And, right. and, and I understand that, okay, not everybody that works in business is making minimum wage. But it does have an impact on bottom line. And when governments have instituted policies in the past, and, and you know this from your work at the Chamber over the years, invariably they've had to backtrack a few months later and say, you know what, we need to do some supportive programs to help these businesses to be mitigated, uh, some of the impacts they have. They haven't even talked about that yet. No, no, they haven't. And that's the unfortunate part. We're, we're really disappointed that they wouldn't go and do the economic uh, impact uh, study work that's necessary to better understand this. You know, I've heard the minister speak as well, and, you know, he, he talks about the study work they've done. Yes, they have, um, in terms of what, what, what other uh, jurisdictions have done. But what they did not do is the economic impact study. 
So to really understand what this is going to mean, and and I, I'm lost by that. I just don't understand how uh, one can go and implement these kinds of changes without really understanding what they are. It's like it's like you or I going to the bank and getting a mortgage for something way more than we can afford and not understanding what the impacts would be. We would never do that. <laughs> well, and and while the government loves to talk about how Ontario's economy has improved, and it has, the numbers are, are there. We get that. Yep. Uh, this is still a very fragile situation uh, that we're in right now, and and there's so many different variables that could turn this. And they've addressed this, and the premier was quite candid earlier this year, of course, by saying, you know what, we blew it on the hydro file. We need to fix that for the sake of businesses and consumers. Uh, why don't they do that same sort of thing now before they have to make that same retraction a year from now and say, hey, we blew it on this one too, is do the homework first so that they have solid evidence to substantiate the policy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure why. Um you know, other than maybe there's an election coming down the road. But, yeah, I heard um, that. Yeah, but but we're we're look. We've taken the view of if you're not going to do it, then we will. We think it's the right thing to do. It's prudent. Uh, it helps provide evidence and an understanding of what the impacts will be, and then leads to an opportunity for a conversation about how do we mitigate. Are you working in parallel paths here? You you mentioned the chamber is going to do their own survey here and talk to business folks. You know the government's doing this, so this going around the province seeking input. Are you, are you going to get your information in a timely fashion so that you can present it to the government by the time they are, quote-unquote, making up their minds? Yeah, so our, our target is to be finished by the end of August and be able to present. So um, we should, we'll be near the tail end, um, but we're making sure that in each of the communities that they go to, we're, we're, we're doing everything we can to make sure that small to medium-sized enterprises are, are able to participate and um, have, the, have the necessary information to be able to communicate um, this, this big issue in terms of, you know, we, better, we, we best understand what those economic impacts are, and then we'll come out with our, uh, the results of the study, the independent study, and, and then uh, hopefully there'll be some uh, willingness and openness to look at what those impacts are and then start talking about how do we manage this better. Well, let's see how they handle it, and I'll certainly be talking with you as you get your stuff done, too. Richard, thanks so yeah. much for this. Greatly uh, appreciated. Happy to help, Bill. Take care. You too. Richard Corso, yeah. of course, uh, on the board with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Still some concerns about uh, how this minimum wage policy is going to be enacted. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. This, listen, there's one thing we all know that we love – our, our, our machines. We love our computers. We love our phones. We, we love data. We just have to get data. We are hooked on wireless, right? Well, once you got somebody hooked on something, that, that's rule one. Get them hooked. Second thing is jack the rates up because they can't do anything about it because they need to get the fix. Well, that's what they're doing here in Canada. Rogers and Bell are hiking data overages fees at a time when Canadians are thirsting for more. They're begging for more data. Rogers raising the rates over 40%, uh, 400 megabytes. Uh, a full gigabyte now costs about 70 bucks. Uh, Adam Oldfield, the uh, president and CEO of FPM and FPM3 Marketing, and, of course, the host of Tech Talk, which we do over Friday on the Bill Kelly Show, joins us to talk about this. Adam, how are you doing, my friend? Well, you know what? I'm just collecting those pennies between the couch right now, Bill. I've, I've, <laughs> I've got to pay my data bill, so I'm just trying to find all the copper I can. You know something? First of all, pennies are out of circulation. Second of all, pennies ain't going to do it for you, my friend. You better start looking for toonies and loonies. <laughs> on, on a very large scale. You know what? The $5 coin needs to come out very quickly <laughs> to pay for the wireless costs that are going up. And this is 
this is interesting that it's coming out and this announcement is happening. Uh, I was a little perplexed. Honestly, I kind of was, was stunned. Um, and, and, and as you know, I have a, an account in the U.S. I'm with Verizon, yeah. with my U.S. business. Uh, and, and in Canada, I have the, you know, the, uh, uh, the Rogers. I'm with the Rogers group up here. But I also have for my office, internally, I use the Freedom, uh, previously the Wind. And for those reasons specifically is that I can honestly tell you across the board the experience on all three platforms. This is something, Bill, literally, Michelle and I, we were in the States, and as we were down there talking to Verizon, because I'm going to look at maybe updating my phone in the U.S., they have a plan, and we probably heard it, I think there's been many reports, about the fact that you can now get a wireless plan, unlimited. By the way, let's be clear, unlimited is 23 gigabytes at high speed, okay? And then after that, it, it throttles down. So here's what I discovered. For less than $65, I was able to call in the U.S. anywhere. And that included Mexico and Canada texting and calling. Where, this is where even the big companies in Canada have uh, the American companies by the throat. When I said, well, this sounds like a deal. I'm just going to get rid of my Rogers plan, and I'll just use the Verizon while I'm in Canada. Wrong. $20 gives you 500 megabytes, okay? And then for each additional 100 megabytes was $10. So it just ruined that idea. So I know a lot of us have said, why don't I go to the States? And that You could if you don't use data. And that is the biggest issue right now is data. And and this goes back, by the way, just to broaden the discussion for a second, uh, to one of the discussions we've had about these upcoming uh, NAFTA negotiations, uh, where telecommunications is going to be a big issue here. They haven't talked a whole lot about this, but companies like Verizon are pressuring Washington right now to say, we've been trying to get into Canada for years. And, and consumers like you and me and business people like you uh, are, are begging this Canadian government to allow them in. And so far, the government said, no, that's got to change because we are really getting hosed right now by the Canadian companies. Because every time something like this happens and Verizon tries to do something like that, they go running to the CRTC and the CRTC just rolls over and lets them rub their tummy and gives them whatever they want. <laughs> well, and this, is, we, this is a real truth monopoly. You know, they say we don't have a monopoly because there's fair competition. That is not true. And I think we can evidently see this. I mean, I'm not sure if you've been reading the reports of what Bell and Rogers are commenting on is that we have more than fair enough plans on the market. Well, here's the challenge we have. One, we as consumers, and I've said this before on Tech Talk, we as consumers in Canada are extremely heavy data users. We are the most innovative civilization in the world that utilizes mobile applications, online shopping. We put America to shame when it comes to being uh, using these, this technology and using data to its full capacity. Yet, we are also the same country that is being like handcuffed from being able to fully exercise the ability of utilizing the, the data. And so with that becomes another challenge is that, you know, we as Canadians are being also encouraged to use online data. Use your phone to the movies. Use your phone to check your gas rates. Use your phone to pay your bills. Yet at the same time, the cost to do this is not feasible to be able to, to deliver. So I have a challenge to the Canadian government. And I mean, the CRTC regulates it.
But the rules that are really coming through are coming from the federal government. And that's something that I think has to be literally pushed to the liberals up above. And, and Justin has to be able to say to his people, hey, we are a group of Canadians that are very much innovative. We are leading when it comes to world technology utilizing it. We have what is to stop us from not utilizing this. We've got Waterloo. We've got Ottawa. Hamilton is bringing more and more technology and encouraging mobile applications, and yet we as consumers can't afford to use it. Here's the, here's the problem, though. Uh, because the companies have done the same thing with TV and, and cable rates. Remember that discussion you and I had on t- on Tech Talk a while ago, where they've said, you know, when we complained about the high rates, and, and they said, well, wait a second, we have plans that are far more inexpensive and, and far more flexible. Canadians can use those. And so, yeah, if you only want to get two channels on your television, you can buy those. You know, that doesn't work. And they're doing the same thing with this. So they're saying, oh, no, there are rate packages available for data users. But for a guy who's in business like you or most of the business people I talk to, they're so restrictive that you know there's going to be overages and then they nail you with it. Well, in in my case, here's a situation where my plan, which is this is ludicrous in this day and age. My plan is over seven years old. The one that I have with Rogers right now. This plan is so good. And the value I'm paying right now is so valuable that when I actually call to say, hi, I'd like to look at your plans with Bell, with TELUS, because I negotiate and I don't have a restricted contract at the moment. All of them are saying, wow, that's a really good plan. You don't want to give that up. And I'm thinking to myself, isn't it supposed to get cheaper with the technology advancements? And, you know, in my case, I have uh, eight phones and I have a data pooling. Me specifically, I use over 14 gigabytes of, of data, and then that's shared amongst the rest of the staff uh, on, my, on my senior level uh, with up to five gigs. So if I go to seven, it, it tends to spill. But even my company, we try to use wireless as we can. As much That's why I split some of the phones and went local with uh, the Freedom or Wind at the time, because I had to actually sit back and think through each individual usage. Who's doing what with this information? So I share this with everyone that really take the time to go through and take a look at your data options. And I say this to every business I'm consulting when it comes to their website or their mobile development. Let's go over what you need your phone to do. There is a time Verizon did a campaign that said five gigabytes is enough. You don't need to spend more for unlimited. They, to- they actually pulled that campaign, which was interesting. And now that they're- everyone's on the unlimited plan, it just makes us more, I-, I would say, behind in Neanderthals when it comes to technology. Well, and, and by the way, I know that we've talked about Bell and, and, and Rogers as being, uh, you know, the guys with the black hats here. Uh, TELUS doesn't get off the hook either, because I know the initial reaction to this story was, oh, no, yeah, come to us then, because we're only charging $5 uh, per gigabyte. But if you exceed that, then it jumps 100% to 10 bucks for each tenth of a gigabyte over. So, I mean, they're going to get you one way or another. It's just a matter of when and how. Well, and, you know, here's the biggest thing I think people are still confused about. Where and how is their data being used? And you know what? When you're factoring in, A, the costs are going up, number one. Number two, what you're spending your money on when it comes to specifically data with your mobile phones and and your mobile data rates. Uh, If you're using Facebook, oh, that's right, many do. When you're scrolling through and those videos are playing and the ads are playing, folks, if you are not on a wireless plan, you are going to be using up data. It is going to soak it. Number two, if you are using any kind of location devices, Snapchat, Google Maps, all of these. I mean, just to give an example, Bill, when you're driving from from Hamilton to Toronto and you use Google Maps to check the traffic 
and otherwise, you're going to be using up to 200 megabytes. 200 megabytes is what it's going to take to get from Hamilton to Toronto on Google Maps. Now, using your just comment on TELUS saying, hey, for each one-tenth, uh, uh, I think you said one-tenth uh, with TELUS was going to be uh, uh, 100% more, just think about that for a moment. Just to get from Hamilton to Toronto, a uh, uh, 40-minute without traffic, two-hour drive, not including all the other things that are going to be coming in, your emails, you may be uh, uh, you know, getting other notes, you may be listening to your radio. Of course, you're not using your cell phone unless you're in the back of the car with Hamilton Limo. But if you are using the data on your phone, then you're going to be soaking up a lot of data. And, and people are sending emails with attachments larger than 10 to 15 megabytes these days. This is all adding up. So the fact of the matter is the wireless gods or the, 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 the network gods out there that are telling us you can only use this much, and if you need more, you can pay more. My recommendation is get rid of the whole uh, uh, home TV, the home Internet, and you know what? Why don't we just put more energy if you guys, Bell, Rogers, tell us, want to get out there and be actually competitive – Take away some of those privileges because TV is not as where it used to be and put that value into the, into the Internet wireless so consumers and businesses could be able to give them uh, a little more value for the consumer. Adam, you 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 got feet rather on both sides of the, uh, the the you know the the line here. Okay, you have an American system for your American companies. You obviously with with Canadian companies up here for the stuff on this side of the 49th. Why the argument from these guys up here every time that we talk about these comparators is well we can't afford to do that uh, we don't have the customer base that they have in the states uh, therefore we can't do what Verizon does is there any legitimacy at all to that there is some legitimacy and I will agree to the fact that there is we are still as my, again I'm going to go back we as citizens and in Canadian citizens we are innovatively using mobile technology to its full capacity. On a limited scale, we have a very big country without the mass population to justify the means of investment. And remember, we're still running off technology that has a, uh, a steel tower in the sky sending a, a signal. I mean, it's going to be, we will be probably years behind the 5G network, which I think we talked about. I mean, they're rolling out some pilot programs right now. But, you know, until Facebook or Google can get into the game in Canada and start putting blimps and drones in the sky, providing a high-speed Internet option to us, it's going to become a challenge other than in the major city networks. So the Montreal, Toronto's, the Calgary's, Vancouver's, you're always going to be able to get probably the best and the quickest high-speed Internet. But that little road trip between right now uh, Cambridge to Owen Sound, you're going to get that pocket where you're always going to end up dropping down to 3G because the population doesn't justify it. Now, does this necessarily mean that we have to, you know, lower the rates from across the board? No. What I'm saying is good business practice would be able to have someone come back uh, from Rogers Bell Telus, rethink their business packages, and be able to offer that value back to the consumers. There's another element to this, too. Because I heard this same argument a long time ago uh, when, when all of a sudden the CRTC told Bell they had to break up their monopoly on phone service. And, and Bell would, you know, get down on one knee and say, we're going to go out of business. We can't do this. You can't allow all these other people in. Bell's doing just fine. Thank you very much. Uh, and now we're hearing this from Rogers and from Bell and, and from TELUS and, and even some of the smaller providers right now. You can't allow these guys in here. We can't allow more competition. It's going to drive us out of business. No, it's going to take them. You know what it is? It's going to force them to be smarter. And right now they don't have to be smarter because the, the money just keeps on rolling in. And we're the ones that are paying for it through the wallet. 
Well, data is a big revenue source. We know that for the big companies. Just to give an example of how, again, capitalism works in its benefit across for consumers. Google, and we, we spoke about this many, actually goes to four, five years ago, Google started providing a Google Fiber network. And part of it was going into cities and offering the infrastructure to start putting up towers. Well, let me give you an example of by opening up some of that competitive market share, Google now provides the hardware installations that Verizon, AT&T, all of them are using Google's towers that they didn't have to put the infrastructure cost in. And in light of that, Google gets now an agreement that they are sharing towers between Verizon, AT&T uh, AT Mobile, and AT&T, and so forth. So it does make sense that they do work with each other. And right now, the big three are actually helping each other. I mean, part of the CRTC, regu the CRTC regulation is they have to be able to provide accessibility in markets that normally are not there. So uh, as an example, if you're in northern Ontario, I'm on Rogers, it actually will show on my phone roaming, but I'm on a Canadian tower, which is Bell. So it's, it's not that it isn't limited and we don't have enough money. Hey, we as Canadians don't mind using it and we're willing to invest in it. There is a large value and market opportunity for other competition to come in. And there is more than enough revenue in this country, country to be able to have all six companies, should they ever exist, be able to flourish and survive. Heck, look at wind. It got purchased by Freedom. That wasn't by accident. It was because it offered a competitive value that consumers were able to buy into. I don't think Bell, Rogers, and Tellers were crying when, when wind came in. They did at the beginning, but you know what? It still somehow survived, and they're still making profits. Example, exactly. When are you going to become the CRTC commissioner? That's another topic. Uh, we got to break it. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about this, of course, Friday, 1130 on Tech Talk. Thanks so much for this, Adam. All right. Thanks, Bill. Adam Take Oldfield, care. president of FPM3 and FPM3 Marketing. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.